Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 66. By the time I started, I, I had accumulated so much knowledge for grazing and, and had that experience that it wasn't like, I wasn't coming into it real green. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's episode, we have Adam Mason of Hill Farms. I think you're going to enjoy his story and the greater purpose he finds with his farm. Also, something that I think you'll enjoy is how he got started. I think you'll enjoy it. First, 10 seconds about my farm. Last week, I mentioned we got quite a bit of rain. It's been super nice, and we got a little bit more last weekend, which is just crazy for July, but I will not complain about rain. But according to the meteorologist, the heat dome is building in and we are having hot weather right now. What does that do for the farm? It makes me not want to work. I'm not a fan of 102 and well, if it hits triple digits, I'm not a fan. But the bigger issue for me right now and we're going to talk about one of my lease farms. The Cerecia lespediza has just grown so wonderfully, but it's shading a lot out and it's gotten so mature. My cows are not wanting to eat it very good. Now they will graze it slowly, but it's a last choice for them. And as much Cerecia, Cerecia lespediza that I have in the pasture, I need them to graze it. So that's the biggest struggle there. Uh, Johnson grass is another concern. One of the lease farms has a lot of Johnson grass. The other farm has a little bit out there. None that I'm concerned about right now, but I have heard reports in other parts of Oklahoma through the drought and the smaller or younger Johnson grass causing some problems. So you do have to be careful with that. If it's able to be grazed, it's a great forage. Get yours checked. I've never checked mine, and maybe at some point I should. I monitor it and try not to graze during stressful times for it. And also, um, for one of the leash properties, the cows are grazing it almost the whole time it is growing. So the cows adjust to it some, and I think that helps. And I believe I've read that before, too. I really should read on that more. Anyway, enough of my rambling. If you have not joined the Grazing Grass community on Facebook, we encourage you to join it. Just search for Grazing Grass Community and hit join. Look forward to seeing you there. And let's talk to Adam. Adam, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you. Adam, can you tell us a little bit about you and your operation? Yeah, so I'm a first-generation farmer. Our operation, currently we're doing chicken, turkey, eggs, pork, and beef, 100% pasture raise, and anything that requires feed, we do We do certified organic feed. But yeah, we, we grow to a local customer base and sell directly off the farm, some farmer's markets. So you've got a lot going on is what I hear. A lot going on. Yes, plus I have... Three kids under the age of five. Oh, yes. Where are you located? We're just outside of Pittsburgh. We're north of Pittsburgh in Apollo, Pennsylvania, about 40 minutes north of Pittsburgh. Oh, yes. I think uh, Pennsylvania probably leads the states in number of guests we've had on the podcast. Really? Yeah. Eli has suggested a few people and he's based up there. So that helps out on that as yeah, well. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. So how long have you been farming and, and selling locally? Uh, so we started our own personal operation in 2020. I have been in the agricultural sphere for, let's see, since 2011. That's where I went, you know, went to college and have a plant science degree. And that's where kind of where I started doing conventional grown vegetable production. I mean, so we were originally in California. I managed, I went through college and then they hired me on as the farm manager for the university. And so I managed about 400 acres of 
we grew about almost everything you can think of. Cause you, you know, in California, you can't you do have that luxury of, you can grow anything from citrus to apples to veg crop. And then we did a lot of, I was, you know, I, I helped with the pasture side of things with the animal units and always, always gravitated towards that. It was like my favorite thing, walking pastures, looking at, you know, okay, like where are we at in vegetative load? Like, okay, do we have, you know, how long, how much longer until the cows move? And then everything there was irrigated too. So I had to like, you know, we had to pull the cows out, run pipe in there late, like manually lay pipe in. Definitely a lot of the skills that I have came from that, you know, and the knowledge from there too. So, so you, you mentioned earlier, your first generation farmer. So you didn't grow up on a farm, but you decided to go into plant science. Yeah. So I was in Arizona in 2010 and I was in Native American land and sorry, no, 2008, I was in there, not 2010. And I had this vision that I was to grow food for people that couldn't grow for themselves. And I'm like, I'm in some very impoverished areas in Arizona. And so the, the irony was that I didn't know how to grow food. So it put me on this path to educate myself. And that's where I went to Cal Poly Pomona. And I started there in 2011, you know, immediately got hired on the farm crew and just, I told everyone, I was like, I was a hardcore capitalist when it came to my education. I wanted every one of my questions answered. My professor's like, I didn't get to anything, anything about lesson today though. You're asking much questions. Like, I don't care. I want to know. I want to learn. So. But yeah, really, really sucked up everything with there. And that ultimately led me after I graduated and got hired on as a farm manager, I was like, okay, when am I supposed to be like helping people, these impoverished people? And so we visited friends in, in Haiti and that's when you want to talk about poverty. I mean, that's the, the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. So I visited an orphanage and we went into the boys and girls room and I'm overwhelmed by the stench of urine. And I'm like, I asked the, the guy, he started a small orphanage. It was completely funded by him. And I was like, why does it smell like this? And he's like, well, we can't afford diapers. The kids wet their beds every night. And so we try to hose it out, but it's so humid that these pads oh. don't dry out. And these are like these foam pads. They were starting to get it corroded from the urine. And I was like, this is ridiculous. So. So I immediately got back and I, I started fundraising. I got friends and family just calling up bats and saying, Hey, I'm going back. I'm going to buy mattresses. We got, I fundraised at over $8,000. I went back by myself, took 300 pounds of sheets, clothes, cloth diapers. I went over and I built beds all by myself over there. I got a friend was that how we got connected. She she's in a, a well-funded orphanage. And, uh, so she had contacts with getting mattresses, but we got the kids like all set up over there. And then I went back four other times to build agricultural systems to help them grow their own food for the orphanage. And then also was enough to, they could sell some of that for schooling, whatever they, they need. And so it's scaling it into their, to, so they can do that. And then ultimately led me to uh, Pennsylvania. And I won't get through all the details of that, but when in 2020, I was finally done working for people and we were like, we're going to do it ourselves. And it was like in the midst of a pandemic. And so when we called the nonprofit HEAL, which stood for Holistic Environmental Agricultural Learning. And ultimately when we, when we start our farm, I said, what are we going to call it? And I wanted to call it HEAL Farms. Because a percentage of all of our sales at Heal Farms gets donated to Heal. I always hated the aspect of the nonprofit. I felt like I was professionally begging. And so I didn't like that. I wanted to be able to work to, you know, donate to them. And so we're utilizing the farm and supporting Heal the nonprofit. So that's why that's why our farm's called Heal Farms. I was gonna ask about that because it says, I see right here on your Instagram profile it says percentage of sales donated to heal the earth so i was kind of i was curious about that already so you really explained that well so in 2020 you had the opportunity and you got this land so you could start your farm did you start growing anything or did you immediately jump into livestock what led me to Pennsylvania? I had two sisters that moved out here. Like one was over a decade and then, yeah, they're, they, they've been here for quite a while. And so I wandered out of California 
And my wife said, if we move out of California, we have to be around family. So it just made sense of Pennsylvania. So I looked for a job. It's pretty interesting how everything was orchestrated, if you will. Because as we found this job, I thought it was like the dream job. Like, oh my gosh, I was working for this regenerative farm owned by a very wealthy person. And so they were transitioning to more animal production. And so I was like, man, I'm, I'm your guy. And I was already doing small batches of chickens and stuff in, in my backyard in California. And so when I came out, we had this huge plant. I was planning for three months during the winter time. And we had a, a, a very large buyer that was going to buy everything we grew. And then COVID hit. And then that was it. They said, we're not buying anything. And so the owner of the farm said, that's it. I'm done with the farming thing. I'm, I'm turning this into a horse ranch. And so I don't know anything about horses. So they fired me. And that's why I was like, all right, we're done. Like I'm, I'm done working for people. Let's do it our own. And so we just went all in. Uh, yeah, went straight to livestock. So it started with chickens and turkeys in the first year. And then we had egg layers by, I think the end of that year. And then worked our waves, it weighs into pigs and cattle the, the following year. Very good. Well, something you mentioned there that backyard chickens in California. So what were you doing there? So I was doing, I was working at Cal Poly Pomona. I was the farm manager there. And always, like I said, I always loved the animal. It's always, I was big at plants, right? Like plants was like my passion. And anytime I had freedom in any classes, I always gravitated towards pasture management, forage species. Like I, I was working on my masters. I was doing, I was going to do that on, on grazing. So I was working with a lot with the animal units and worked along with them, you know, like, okay, time to move this. We got, we got sheep into our vineyard. So after the harvest came, we, we were about like first time ever. Some of the, like, it was really, really cool stuff that we got to do, um, flexibility of that. I was doing that, but then we lived in, which we thought it was like the biggest property at the time. It was a half acre, um, house kind of like, you would call it rural for California, but it's not, I mean, it's like a, a track neighborhood. And I, I started doing my own chicken, you know, growing, growing broilers built like a Salatin style and had built two of those and rotated around. And then you got to irrigate behind them. Cause you know, it was the summer times got up to like 120 degrees. But yeah, it was it. and then bought a feather plucker and started doing backyard in California for ourselves and occasional with friends and stuff. So I, I got, I got some good experience with that. Yeah. That, that ultimately led me here. And I wanted, I've always for a decade or so before we started, I wanted to do what I'm doing now. And so it was a good way to do what, you know, be able to do what I, I love and have a passion for, but yet also you know, the nonprofit side, like getting able to support that too. So, and I, I think that's wonderful. I also think that's wonderful that, that you started grazing on a half acre. So yeah, you, you didn't go out and buy cows and put on a half acre, which makes perfect sense, but you did. You're like, this is something I want to do. And you figured out how to get started right where you were. I got two sheep and I was rotationally grazing the two sheep throughout the yard and you should have seen it i mean it was pretty awesome because it was bare dirt like they made a little like you know bmx bike track in the back what reasons why i moved out of california um i had the sheep in the front yard and they got stolen but yeah so that that ended the the ruminant side of things but yeah continued with the the, the poultry that is great sorry here they yes it is but start got stolen out of your yard but just Growing those chickens in your backyard and you incorporated the ruminants in there with a couple sheep. Excellent. Excellent. I've heard some wonderful getting started stories, but that has to be one of the top ones right there. Getting started like that. I, I love it because so often we tell people, just get started. Do what you can. Wherever you are, get started. And and I suffer from this. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. We have my dad's herd and we have my herd. Managed a little bit differently, but but somewhat similar. It took me years to get started with my own herd just because I was doing this other and I wanted to do it and I just I just didn't get started. The the most important thing, get started. Wherever you are, get started. I love that you got started in your backyard with some chickens and some couple of lambs. We'll jump back to Pennsylvania. You're out there, you get this, you decide. Okay, you're going chickens and turkeys to get started. I think I had 700 the first year. 
And that, that was a big jump because it was, it was going from, I think the biggest batch I'd done before that was maybe a hundred in a year. And so, yeah, go, going, going from 700 there. And I think we only did like 20 or 30 turkeys that year. When jumping from that, just raising a hundred in a season to raising 700, what were some challenges you had on that, that growth right there? I think logistics of everything, trying to think of challenges, like I knew enough of what to buy for equipment. Plus I was like trying to be very conservative with spending. And I made some like, I think some foolish, yeah, in the beginning I made some like foolish purchases. It wasn't terrible because I ended up making my money back. But like, had I known a little bit more of like the scale I'd be in, I would have guided myself in a different path and be like, okay, you don't buy that. Like I, I bought like a, a little lawnmower, a lawn horse or something like that. And, uh, and then like a little trailer that it had, and I would haul a 55 gallon, uh, barrel of water out to the pasture. Like, I think I was going through it maybe every other day. Um, and then same thing with feed. And it was just way too underpowered. Like I should have grabbed, like bought a quad and just bought a, a mid-sized trailer, you know? So it's just little things like that, but it, uh, overall it was, it was pretty good. And that first year, did you direct market the, the chickens and turkeys? Yeah. And that was kind of difficult too, because when I left that job, I started at a friend's farm. So he, he offered to let us, uh, start our our farming operation at his farm. He he didn't want people coming on the property so much. He liked his privacy. We were we were figuring out. So I was like doing delivery. Like I wasn't making money doing delivery. So but then we were gonna start doing like curbside pickup, which I think would have worked good. But by that time, I think after our first batch, we had bought our farm. So so that kind of kind of worked out. But then yeah, so everything everything was direct direct retail and it was it was tough trying to get facebook and you know anything any local stuff like that trying to blast that out but yeah some of the customer actually our first customer of doing that when we first started is like still a really good customer of ours and very good very good friend of ours too so now on getting on selling that mini and getting started were you going to farmers markets of, as well or did you focus on 20. So farmers markets were probably shut down for the most part. Pennsylvania wasn't too regulated like that as much, but all the farmers markets had already been filled. So there's no empty spots. You kind of got to get in there like in the winter. Yeah. So it was, it was a very difficult time to like really get some traction. So Facebook was a big one, just trying like doing posts and like joining groups on there and like putting posts like that to try and get that, try to get that out. So you went through that first year, you did chickens and you also did a, a small group of turkeys. I say a small group. I've not raised turkeys. So one turkey would be a large group for me. So it would be a big group. Turkeys fascinate me. And I keep telling my wife one of these days and she's like, pump the brakes. You got too much going on. Turkeys are one of my favorite to grow. They really are. They have so much personality, a little difficult in the beginning something they catch on faster than chickens other times they're a, a lot slower but once you get like i would say past in the eight to ten week old range they become pretty bulletproof and uh they're just funny they're just oh yes you know walk up to them they just got a really fun personality i i, I really enjoy turkey season for your turkeys and ch chickens what breeds were you using yeah, I do Cornish cross for the, the meat birds and then the broad, the, the white breasted, double breasted. It's all the you know, standard conventional. And you added layers in, I think at the end of that first year. Yeah, we got like 150 layers. Those are actually getting cycled in. I just have right now I have on the property, 150 new ones that are, that'll be taken over in the winter. And what breed did you go with for layers? Cuckoo Morans. That was the biggest. Don't ever. If you're getting into production egg, don't get a Cuckoo Moran. They are, all of mine were super bruny. I mean, I knew they were bad layers, but I like that really dark contrast. Of the, it's a dark egg, but some of them is just like, so this next batch, I have three breeds. 
it still still will have a pretty color to it. But yeah, the, I, I I did like Well Summers. Uh, I do the Americanas. I still have those. So I have three. So it's like a production red. And every every hatchery's got their own like name to it. It's like you know. And then we're doing White Leghorns and Americanas, the Easter Eggers. So so you'll get some brown or light brown plus your white eggs and plus your colored eggs from the Americanas. Yeah, so still have like a really nice look to it. And then all of those, probably minus the minus the Easter Eggers are are pretty good, really high in production. So definitely having quite a bit with them. Oh, very good. I have looked at the Well Summers, but I haven't purchased any. In fact, one of the guys I work with, he was telling me his wife had ordered them some. So I'm interested to see how they do for them. We got those too. They're okay. Yeah, I would say... If you're going to get something like that, I, I find though that a lot of the production browns will eventually start throwing some spots too. Not, not like the well summers, but well summer. Yeah. They, they did pretty good. Right. And, and the varieties you have, you can visually discriminate what breed they are pretty easily, which I think there's some advantages to that. If you're rotating, if you're replacing like all your production reds this year and next year you'll replace the the white leggings or, or however you want to do it. Um, having, having distinct breeds really, or hybrids really helps in that. There's a, you got to start. You just got to start, Cal. There we go. Yes. Yeah. My wife will be so excited. You're starting what now? Turkeys and layers. Are you kidding? Yes. Yes. Actually, to be honest, I do lay, I do raise a few layers each year, but I, I sell them whenever they're about ready to start laying. Because backyard chicken producers who want three or four hens pay really nicely for those hens. They pay much more than I would ever pay. So I try and raise a few breeds that I like each year. And they, they do pretty good. I mean, I'm an hour from Tulsa. So I get people from Tulsa. Probably the furthest I've had someone drive to buy ready-to-lay pullets, they drove from Oklahoma City which just floored me, but they wanted, they wanted pullets ready to lay and they wanted just, they wanted pretty chickens and I was happy to oblige. Yeah, that's great. I started, I, I was knowing that I was getting into culling like this year. And so I started, people started calling me like crazy. I was like, yeah, I got them. You, you'll get, you'll get a little bit of production out of them. You know, I'm wanting peak production, but you'll still get. And so, yeah, we I sold off probably. 25 of them and for 15 bucks a piece, like, you know, that, that's totally worth it. I mean, like I did the ROI for them thinking like, yeah, you'll make that back in like, you know, a month or two. And then, you know, I'm getting all that money back, um, that I put into it. So, and you're not having to dress a old hen and sell her as a stew chicken, stew hen. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of worked out good. Now you made it through your first year. Then you added pork? Yeah, I, I bought two Mangalita pigs. It was like a breeding pair. It was $20. I had to drive to New Jersey. It was like six-hour drive, but they gave me like all this free stuff, like pig feeder and all this stuff. They're like, we just want to get rid of it. We're getting out of it. One, I sold to somebody that was just going to take it to a sale barn. I ended up getting some other ones. Like, well, we got pigs. Might as well get more. You know, what's the difference of two versus, you know, five? And then bred those and the, the, the pigs have been really an incredible tool on our farm that we, we've utilized. That is a tough animal to manage. So just, just expand upon that a little bit on your management of the pigs and some challenges you've had there. Before we bought the property, the previous owners had logged this area and he was an older gentleman and couldn't like keep up on the, the crew when they came in and logged. They left every single crooked branch, all the slash they left in this one area. And this, this one area, I would say it's probably about seven acres, completely overgrown with uh, blackberry, multiflora rose, autumn olive, barberry, like the worst weeds you could possibly think of. And it was, it was literally so thick that you could not see three feet in front of you. And so I go in with a chainsaw and cut a line through and lay the electric, you know, wire down and the pigs, it's just incredible. I mean, 
they they took these areas and you're like, wow, there was all these logs in there. Granted, too, we had that whole area was like really thick with black locusts. You know anything about black locusts? It does not rot. So that that is like three times better than pressure treated lumber. And so that sitting on the ground, it it'll completely outlive me. That'll be there 80 years, you know, in the right, in the right conditions. So, so yeah, so these branches were just all over the place, but the pigs like took out. And as we, as we started breeding the pigs, I think the most we got up to was 19. That was just like a high horsepower machine. It would just come in. They would just tank these areas completely down. And I kind of pushed the limit sometimes with how long I kept them, kept them in, in an area. And sometimes a little too long, sometimes probably not enough. They come in and they, this area is, is so incredible now. So we, once we got all that wood exposed, nothing other to do than burn it. So we, in the winter time, we'll go, we would go out and just gather all these in these big piles. Sometimes we'll be burning for two weeks straight. I'm uh, just pulling logs, you know, these, these big inferno flames, last through rainstorms and everything like just, you know, and, and clean the heck out of these areas. And now native grasses are coming up. We got deer grass, a lot of incredible, like high quality forage species for cows and pigs, whatever, you know, whatever you're grazing is now coming up in these areas. And it's all because of the pigs. And now like I, I, I give tours a lot and we drive through this area and I say, look at because there's some areas that the pigs haven't been. And I said, look at right here. I said, you cannot see where, you know, you couldn't see three feet in, 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 inside of that area. And as soon as we pass this threshold of where the pigs had been, it's just everyone, wow, they're blown away because of what they've done to really restore these areas to where we're getting production, you know, a, a lot nicer of a habitat. We have deer now that that fawn in these areas. It's a perfect area for, for hot summer days. Now I got, I got civil pasture. I mean, we got locusts and all these trees coming back up, these sapling and the cows, you know, they'll, they'll nibble on the locusts. So we're getting good protein source there. Plus the nitrogen fixing. And then it was a great spot for this last winter. We had a crazy cold storm come in with like negative 27 wind chill. And we put the cows in this area and it, you know, all this wind break from the trees that surround there. It was, so it's a perfect, like extreme climate kind of haven. So yeah, we call that, we call it the Savannah and it's, and it's starting to really look like that. So that sounds great. And pigs can do so much. In fact, as you're setting, setting here, talking about that, you know, I'm, I've got a few goats I'm running on some wooded area and I'm thinking, how wonderful what they're doing. You know, maybe a pig or two to root up some of those little sprouts coming up might not be a bad thing because the goal is for me is to turn that into more silvopasture rather than brush I can't even walk through. So I really hadn't thought about that till you mentioned it. The perfect combo would be having pigs go in and then sheep or goats behind them. I mean, you want to talk about cleanup. It would be an awesome machine. Now, are you farrowing your hogs out as well? That's where we're at now. I initially was like, yeah, we're going to do farrow to finish. Okay, if you're going to do that, I you, you need to have at, at the most up to about three herds running three separate herds. We did not have the infrastructure to run three separate herds. So, I mean, I was like, farrowing while I had feeder pigs. I had mamas getting free feed, you know, while the feeder pigs are like, they get free feed plus a boar that's just getting free feed. Like it, it is not the way to do it unless you can be, have a setup that's, you know, you could separate when they need to be separated. Yeah, we are, we are, I'm going to restructure how we're doing pork. We only have four right now. And after that, I'm only going to buy feeder pigs and then just grow them because Plus running pigs through the winter isn't fun. So I'll let somebody else do that and I'll just buy feeder pigs off of them. And then I should be able to get them finished by the time winter comes. I, I hated, I hate that aspect of how I started that. So yeah, I would, I would not, I would not do that unless you have the time and the infrastructure set up for that. You talk about that and just converting to just buying the feeders. I think there's lots of advantages to that if you can source the kind of pigs you want. And 
when you, you're out there looking for the pigs, what kind of pigs are you looking for? So I did go with the Mangalitsa and then I found Berkshire Mangalitsa uh, crosses. So you get the Berkshire, that's like a bacon pig. And the Mangalitsa is like your Colby beef of, of pork. Um, so really nice fat, um, you know, bacon pig. And then, uh, he crossed it with a boar that was Hereford and hare. And man, these pigs, it was a four-way cross. These things were just chunks of meat. They were, they were awesome. And unfortunately that boar died. He let me borrow it. Then it went back to his place for a couple months. And for whatever reason, he ended up dying. So we, we you know, we didn't have that, but I think he still does the, the Burke manga. It's still a pretty, pretty good cross right there. I hear a lot of positive about the Burks. Herefords, I just think are, are cool from the aspect of Hereford cattle, pigs, you know, that red and white contrast. It's kind of the same reason I like Dutch belted cows or belted Galloway and Hampshire and Lackenvelder chickens. You know, they're all black with that white belt. I love the idea of my farm having all the anim all the different species, uh, same color. Now, I don't know if I'll do that because I like my Corrientes and they're, they're kind of, um, spotted. So the sheep, I've got Katahdins and I prefer the red Katahdins. I have South Pole cows and my red herd. I've got my red herd and my spotted herd and my red herd. Now my goats aren't red. My goats are black, but I, I really like that uniformity. Just the odd quirk of myself. So when you, you're selling the pork, I assume by cuts to your consumers. So halves and then holes. So, but I haven't, like we haven't processed since last year. One we have, we, we have these four left. So we'll, we'll probably get to those probably, I'm hoping by November, I'll get them done before, before winter hits. And in addition to your pork, you have beef cattle. We also have South Pole. When I first started, there was, there was a farmer and I, I liked that he was how kind of how he managed the animals. And we were thinking of getting low line Angus. I just like the, you know, the smaller frame, that whole philosophy of like keeping your, the cow size, that body size small, less impact to the pasture, more meat to bone ratio. And so my wife was kind of not, she, she wasn't involved in any of it. And so I, I started talking to her. I just don't know. And she's like, well, what's so like, tell me the pros and cons. I told her and she's like, okay. So she started doing research and when she gets into research, she like, she did dog breeding for a long time. So she loves like the breeding aspect and like genetics and stuff like that. And so she started to get re researching telephone. She's like, Adam, why on earth would you pick any other breed? And I was like, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, definitely more money. Um, yeah. So man, I am. So happy though, that, that we went with that breed. That is just, yeah. So we are, we're very, very happy with the South Pole breed. I purchased a few different breeds. My dad's herd's a Lemmy influence breed. And then we've tried a few different breeds of, of bulls. And I purchased some South Poles on building my herd. And I've also got some Lemmy influence. I've got some Red Angus. I've got some different breeds in there. And my wife gets tired of me talking about how good my South Poles look and how good they're doing. And it, I don't know that it's a fluke, but I've been very impressed myself. So have you got to the point that you're, I assume you're going grass finish beef? We just took two, two cows. One, we got her on like a discount because she was open. She went in, she was open again this year, had no excuses. So we, we took down and, and got processed her in another one. We're super excited to try our first beef. Everyone wants to get in because everyone loves beef, right? Everyone wants to start cows right away. Like it is a long, it's a long two year minimum before you start seeing beef production, unless you're doing, you know, getting like yearlings ears or something and, and growing them, growing a finish show. But we're really excited to try. So what's your plans with marketing your beef? Our plan is to put these boxes together, like a 40, 50 pound box. It's probably around an eight of, of a cow selling that in a package and then possibly doing like 
like 25 pound package of, of ground beef or something. And then if like, if somebody wants a whole cow, well, you're buying, that's one eighth in one box, you're buying eight boxes. Or we're thinking with that, but yeah, everything is, everything's direct, direct retail. Um, I know it's a really good way to like dump a lot of product or to sell off a lot of product, but like, I, I haven't figured that how to do that and still, still like pay the bills. Well, I think talking about wholesale, we, we wholesaled our, our calves through the sale barn. Goal for my herd is to sell grass finished beef. We're just, like you said, it takes years and. I am so concerned about having a top quality product. I had some, some calves I could have kept last year, but they weren't quite the breeding I thought they needed to be, to be the, a better end product. So I'm just trying to be careful about that. I really would like to get there faster than I am because I still feel like I'm two years off from it. I'm closer now than I was a year ago. And I'll be honest, the, the marketing and selling aspect. You know, we had um, Will Harris from Oak Farms, and he, he was talking about the three legs of a stool, and, you know, one of them is marketing. That's where I'm the least comfortable. So I'm hoping to get into that, get started with that, and do a little bit better job with it. We'll see. And there's something about almost all farmers, I feel, like we're missing some gene in our, in our DNA that's like, nah, I don't do marketing. Like, I don't want to, but my wife's been... She's stepping up now and getting on board. So that's been a huge help. There is a podcast that I listen to that I haven't listened to lately. I used to listen to it all the time. And, and I go in kind of spells with my podcast. I subscribe to too many that I can't listen to every week. So, and I assume my listeners are like that. You know, there's certain podcasts I listen to every week, no matter what. And then... The remainder of the time I split between a few podcasts and sometimes I'll get on a kick and I'll focus on that podcast and get caught up. I'm trying to think because it's a farm marketing one and I can't oh. think of the lady's name, but she does a really good job. Some things she said on there, it's, it's forcing me to reevaluate and to think about my marketing. Not that I've, I've done any really yet, but just, just working through that thought process. So you've gotten started. You started in the middle of pandemic. You've made lots of progress. You've got lots of lots of irons in the fire, but it looks like everything's going well. What have been some of your biggest challenges to this point? Each enterprise had definitely had its challenges. With the chickens, there was this constant like the all these bottlenecks. So it was like the basic things were like, okay, how many how many chickens do I want to grow? Okay. How many brooders do I make? How many shelters do I make? Like these are kind of like the, the, the steps of what to do. It's like, okay, well then like, what's the next bottleneck? So the next bottleneck would be like, uh, freezer size. So like how we're selling it. If somebody who came in was like, I'll buy everything you got. Okay. That's then now I don't have a freezer bottleneck. My, my next bottleneck would be a trailer and truck. So like that's. That's kind of like where we're at now. So we, we, we were able to get a used walk-in freezer. So now we got that bottleneck taken care of. But now my pickup truck and my trailer is my next bottleneck. So then I would just have to do more batches more often to fit within, within there. But yeah, you can kind of go through all these different bottlenecks. I, I would say each enterprise is, is unique in that, like, with turkeys, I haven't even touched any bottlenecks. I don't think we produce enough really to, to be, to get to that point. But, um, the cattle is a lot of, a lot of help from Greg Judy. I think he's an excellent resource out there. And, and so many people, he, uh, mentors, a you know, doesn't see face to face, but his whole thing is fence and water. And which I felt like the fencing I could only do because we had such a well-trained breed, but the water, man, whew, that, that was definitely one of the biggest challenges. So I was, I had to run a hay wagon with two IBC totes. I could get about 500 gallons, a little over 500 gallons per, per tank. And I'd run that out there with our tractor. You know, we did have some existing fencing, but not, not all the fields had it. So there was some fences that, or some fields that had that was just single strand polywire and like 
I mean, if they got out, it, you know, we just have to try and get them back in. The water was such a huge headache. So there was, there's some good stuff. Uh, Jordan Green does, he does a really great YouTube channel on, on pigs. He would be the great Judy of, of pigs, if you will. But he has, he designed this frost proof paint. So you could have liquid water in the winter. And I took his design and modified it and used a, he used kind of like a string and a float valve. I did mine with a ball valve and then a meter key. So I would stick that meter key in the totes. I mean, this is dead of winter. Sometimes it's like, you know, the high of 10 degrees. You just bust through the top of the, the tank that had some, some ice form over overnight. And then you got liquid water. But we had, when we first started, I think we had 12 cows and... And I was every other day, I had to try and get a tractor start. And what, didn't matter what temperature was. I had to go out, fill water. And in the winter, when you're dealing with water, like I had my water set up to where I could blow it, blow it out, blow the line out every time I used it. But that took like four times the trips of like walking down to the barn, coming back up, opening it, closing, you know, open the air valve, like a lot of, a lot of headaches. So last year I was like, I'm never doing that again without, without any water system. So we put in water and put it in. Now I have 32 water points all over our farm and total game changer, like absolutely worth every bit of the investment in that and night and day difference. Like it takes me without doing like a big paddock set up or something. It takes me about 30 minutes to move the cattle each day, max. That, you know, that includes water, minerals, everything. Winter time, pretty much this the same thing. So he says, get your fence, get your water. I do got to get that water, get that fence, and then get the, the animals. You learn. And water is a pain point for so many people. So, yes. Now, let's not end with your challenges. Tell us about some successes you've had. Yeah. So some of the successes we've had was, I think, I think with the, the pigs coming and clearing those areas and having the cows come in, I mean, there were certain areas that cows were absolutely essential for another enterprise. Like our chickens, when the grass gets too tall, you can't pull the shelters through that tall grass. Plus the chickens aren't going to eat, you know, a, a 24 inch blade of grass. So we use the cattle to graze it off in front of them. So it's, Oh, it's a nice grazing level for, for the, the meat birds. And then they, they do an awesome job just maintaining the grass and, you know, keeping the weed species down, you know, all through different management practices. The cows have been such a, a huge improvement to, to the land that we have. Very good. And that is so wonderful. And it's always great to have those successes. Adam, it's time we transition to our overgrazing section where we take a little bit deeper dive into one of your practices. And today we're going to talk about... I think the bale bombs. Enlightenness. Okay. Yeah. So I, I found out about these this bale bombs. So we use round bales here. They're a really awesome way to hit invasive species or species they just won't graze. So normal winter practices, we do stockpile and then we, we also, you know, unroll hay. There was some areas, I told you about that, that area with the pigs, they wouldn't get to, the pigs just couldn't get to it. I'm, I'm not lying. There were two inch diameter multi-flora rows. And so I wanted to push it. So this winter I took a bale, you know, you take your netting off and I took my tractor and dumped a full-size bale onto like a thick patch of multiflora rows. And the next morning I forced the cows. I mean, they are, they got to work for it. And they went in there fighting for food. They do push and shove a little bit and they snapped that two inch clear off. I mean, you know, 800, you know, 900 pound cow. And oh yeah. It's a lot of force. So yeah, and it, and it just cleaned. Now there's this huge open area and now all the seed grass, you know, seed from that, that hay is coming up. So now it's just like open area for grass to grow. And so now next time they come in, they'll be grazing in that area, adding more manure. Yeah. And so I've done that now in a couple areas, some real, real heavy, heavy areas, and it just wipes out the weeds. So it is a really, really cool 
practice to use in a, in a very rough area that the cows wouldn't normally graze, no matter what you do, you know, you, you're forcing them in that spot and then you're just blasting that area with fertility, basically a habitat for a grass species to grow. So then you, you're hoping that that, that grass will um, outcompete anything else that's coming up. That's kind of the, you know, giving these areas the best shot for, for growing grass instead of growing weeds. It's amazing what that animal impact can do. And with hay, it gives you that ability to pinpoint where you want that animal impact if you have the equipment to do it, because getting that hay there sometimes requires a tractor. We have a, a bale unroller and I've backed it up on stuff before. Um, like what I've done is I will unroll about, I would say at least three quarters of, of the bale. So I'll unroll that out wherever I want. And then I'll just back the bale unroller right up to that weedy spot and take it off right there. So you're, you know, you are having a, a mini, a mini bomb, if you will. And that's all with the quad, you know? So yeah, it's, it's doable. That's a great idea to use your bell and roller like that to, to unroll part of it. And then you get that portion that's left and you can drop that somewhere that you couldn't possibly get in there another way. Well, Adam, it is time for us to transition to our famous four. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question. What is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Andre Voisin's Grass Productivity. You know, he's going over a ton of, like, research papers and stuff like that. But that was, that is a huge, huge book. And, you know, and it's old, old science, but so, so relevant and, gosh, so useful. So I'd say on the grazing side, that that is probably one of my, my favorite resources. And then secondly, for, you know, doing the multi-species, Joel Salatin's latest book, Polyface Designs, that book, in my view, that will go down in his, as his, his greatest work. It is like Legos for adults. It is so much fun. I built a couple things from that, that book and it's just step by step. This is how much wood you need. You need to cut at this angle, this length. You need this many screws and then you just go step by step and, and build the stuff. And it, and he has every one of his enterprises in there and then little comments, you know, talking about little tricks and, and what he wants to do or, you know, what, what you need to do when, when you're building it. But yeah, that's, that's a great book for kind of the, if you're, if you're only, if you're, if you're getting outside of just doing cow, it, it, you know, you want the other species, it's a, it's a great resource. That is a. A book I've, I say I looked at, I've only looked at it online and I've yet to pull the trigger and buy it because I've just, I've, I've wondered if it's going to be that valuable to me. You, you're doing a pretty good book talk to, to encourage me to get it. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? I have a Leatherman Wave and it's always on me and I, I use it every single day. We we've had the Leathermans mentioned before. I've okay. I've never I've never got one and really tried. I carry a pair of lineman pliers. Okay, Adam, what do yeah. you know now that you wish you knew when you started, or what would you tell someone just getting started? On the operation side of things, I think I would like steer away from certain equipment. Like like I don't think you need a tractor for cattle. Unless you just don't want to get water, you know, but if you're good, if you like have the money for a tractor, put in a water light, you know, but yeah. And then by the time I started, I, I had accumulated so much knowledge for like grazing and, and had that experience that it wasn't like, I wasn't coming into it real green. Where can others find out more about you? We do our, all of our sales off of our website, heelfarms.com. Um, and we do a couple, we actually just, I didn't tell you this, we just launched shipping. We'll ship free on anything that's $240, $49 or more to like 20 different states. And then any, anything outside of those areas will ship to it, but it's like the the shipping cost goes up, but yeah. So heelfarms.com, you know, I have an Instagram. I try to do, I want all my customers to know, I think it's very important for them. It's important for me that everyone knows where the food is coming from. And so I try to do stories on there every day. And so I try to like 
you know, educate people in the social media, both Facebook and Instagram. And it's hard because you get like, you know, 59 seconds to like try and try and cram down some information. So, but yeah, every day I try to do stories in there and a way to digitally connect the people to their food, at least as farmers are always saying, we're, we're transparent in what we do. And that's a way I can show some transparency without you having to come and work with me every day. So Heal Farms. So if they want to reach out and find you, they'll be able to. Adam, really appreciate you coming on and sharing today. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer in their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.